0: Welcome to the Human Centred Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Colm Hay. I have worked in the leadership space for three decades and now I work with organizations and leaders to develop powerful cultures of high value and performance that is built all around their people. We will interview leaders from around the world and at the very top end of their game to explore what emotional intelligence in practice actually looks like and the benefits that it could bring to any team. This is a movement to transform the way that we see leadership and to create powerful cultures where people feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated and consequently perform to the very best. Why don't you join the movement and subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to click on notifications to stay up to date with all new content. Welcome to another episode where I get to speak to incredible leaders from around the world and today's guest is probably one of the most mind blowing guests I've had I mean I literally for every guest that I come on that comes on I literally go through uh, what they do who they are their journey and this one has blown my mind it's taken up two pages so I'm going to Stephanie it's great to have you here. But before you say anything, let me introduce you to our listeners. So you are the immediate past president of the Law Society. You broke records because you were the first person of colour. And I think the fourth female ever Six. to have held that illustrious position. And you, not so very long ago, gave up. I think it was only last year that uh, you you uh, moved on from that But you've done so much. You are involved in so much. You're a board member for justice, a cross-party organisation that's all around uh, human rights and uh, strengthening strengthening the justice system, which is an incredible feat in itself, holding multiple roles over several years. I think over a 10-year period, you've held multiple roles in the law society. And I'm guessing that's on top of your own practice. Uh, Commissioner of... uh, the Shinkwin Commission, and I had to really look this one up because I'd never heard of it. But when I when I read about it, it resonated so powerfully with me because it's all about recruitment, retention, progression of underrepresented uh, uh, staff in organisations. And, you know, I still do that work and I've lived and breathed that work for 40 years. Um, and you're also involved in, I'm just going to really go through these, your socio-economic task force. I mean, I, you're not going to tell me what that is transforming le- women leadership in law advisory boards. You do your own consultancy work at various levels of various organisations. I have to pause for a breath just to welcome you. Thank you for doing all this incredible work, Stephanie, and it's good to have you here.
1: Well, absolutely. Thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure to be here.
0: Well, listen, you and I are both uh, fellows in an incredible uh, society of leaders leaders at St. George's House in Windsor Castle. And uh, when I first saw your name listed somewhere, Stephanie, I was drawn to you and I was like, I need to get into a conversation with Stephanie. We've not managed that yet. So I'm just cheeky enough to say, right, just come on to the podcast. Let's just have a conversation there. So this is literally our first ever conversation, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yes. And I love that because it's going to be in a conversation. I have no idea where this is going to go. I do know there's some really powerful questions and topics I want to explore with you. Uh, and I guess one of the first ones for me is, what was it like to become the first president of the Law Society as a person of colour? How did that feel? How did that come about? What were the lessons that you
1: learned? Well, it was breathtaking. Um, Absolutely breathtaking. It still takes my breath away to this day. Some uh, four years after, I found out that I had been successfully elected after four attempts. Wow. Four attempts, four times of trying to reach uh, the deputy vice president position, because once you're elected, you're elected as the deputy vice president. And then it's an automatic trajectory to go on to be vice president and then president, as I became in 2021. So um, it's been a whirlwind from since I found out in April 2019. Um, And the position, the remarkable platform that you occupy in that position, if you are, of course, willing to work hard um, and utilise that position for good, for change. Uh, And I wasn't going to squander the opportunity to do something with it. I love that. Now, a lot of people won't
0: understand what the Law Society is. I, I will do because, of course, I've been involved in those circles for many, many years of my life. Would do you want to just explain how important the Law Society is to the legal profession in the UK?
1: So, the Law Society of England and Wales is the representative body for some or over 200,000 solicitors in England and Wales. And it exists to be the voice of the profession, um, to represent solicitors, but also to ensure um, that uh, the public interest is represented and uh, that the rule of law, and of course, the rule of law in its simplest form, is that it means absolutely no one, government, public authorities, no one is above the law. Um, and to Uh, ensure and protect and work to uphold the rule of law and work towards the public interest. And of course, you know,
0: whenever we talk about law and we talk about people from minority communities, particularly when we in the context of race and there's always that uh, that that rub isn't there there's always that specific interest that uh, and and conversation that comes around that when we talk about disparity and all of these kind of things and of course you know the period that you were at the senior echelons of uh, the law society was also when we had the the global outcry around George Floyd so what kind of conversations were going on there for you or what kind of reflection was going on there for for you and your colleagues in the Law Society.
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, what I should say first is that coming to the position of Deputy Vice President, I found out, uh, I think round about April the 25th, it went public a few days thereafter. And from the moment, I thought this is going to be huge. And I was working on a project with the Diocese of Westminster, um, and by the fourteenth of May, I had given notice on that project, even though I wasn't due to take office until the fourth of July. But I knew whatever this was, because the invitations were starting to come in. Yeah. The interest was there. That you know, and as I say, I was going to utilize this position to the, the to 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 do something different. So. Then uh, what happened is in May 2020, so I'm Deputy Vice President, uh, uh, my term has been uh, the pandemic has hit. Uh, We don't know, we're in lockdown and so forth. And then, of course, what happens is we get the news about George uh, Floyd, uh, the abhorrent events that, you know, uh, surrounded his, his death. And as I understood that there were a number of press interests in coming to me wanting to interview me as to my experience of institutional racism in the profession. And mm. what I said was, I wasn't interested in talking about my experience of institutional racism in the legal profession, because I believed that there would be other people who would be better positioned to talk about it than I. But what I wanted to do was to use my position, my leadership position to talk about change. So Mm. that when I left the profession, when I leave the profession, or or certainly when I left office, that we were no longer talking about what we were gonna do because we had started to see actionable change. So I then set about, calling together the regulators, the professional bodies, uh, Silex, the the Chartered Institute of Legal Executives, the Bar Council, the Bar Standards Board, the Solicitors Regulation Authority, the the legal profession. I called them together and I said, we have a problem. What are we going to do about it? And and it wasn't because I just believed it to be a solicitor profession. For me, it was the whole legal profession needed to come together and talk about things and talk about change. So I founded the ACT, umbrella, which is the Achieving Change Together um, under the under that umbrella, that we were going to work collectively uh, and collaboratively together to affect change. And that's what we set about doing with a number of round tables being held um, up and down the country globally and talking about uh, equality, diversity and inclusion. And I've said that in the correct order because I believe that you can't have diversity and inclusion if you don't have equity, you don't have equality. Mm. Uh, and that's when we started to bring about change, talking about it. And I took, I took every opportunity to talk about the inequalities as I saw it. But I also didn't just want to focus. There were plenty of people who wanted to focus on colour and they wanted to focus on all sorts. But I wanted to focus on social mobility because for me, if you're poor, you're poor. It doesn't matter what your race, your colour, your gender, any of those uh, um, uh, issues are. If you don't have currency in this country, financial currency, um, you, you struggle to get ahead. And I wanted to talk about those. And so having those conversations around the George Floyd event, having those conversations around social mobility and bringing that intersectionality together made a huge difference.
0: I think for me, um, I'm int- I'm really interested, fascinated by your position, the, the 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 direction in which you approached, you know, the whole concept of EDI, uh, because traditionally, and I've been involved in this area for four decades, ever since I became one of the first, you know, people of color to join the police service, it was almost thrust upon me to to be involved in EDI because at a level the organization looks to you they see you as almost an expert in EDI and you're not you're just a human being who maybe is affected by some elements of it Um, but also I felt like I had a responsibility to those that were coming after me to create a better environment and that's what you know sort of inspired me to become a leader but when we talk about diversity, inclusion, equity, equality, all of these kind of things, we, traditionally, we, we look at things in a very homogenous kind of way. We looked at these protected characteristics, you know, male, female, gay, straight, black, white, etc., etc. And I've always had a real problem with this, Stephanie, in so much as the more we look at demography and characteristics, the more actually we could be doing more damage than good. Mm. In so much as we are blanketing people or, or, you know, swathes of people and saying they all have these needs and they don't. So with you looking at it from a slightly different direction and saying, hey, let's look at these the socioeconomic factors involved in this, uh, that sort of takes me into where I come from. And 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 for me it is really around having that Understanding that people all come from different directions, different journeys, different pathways, different experience, and therefore their thoughts will be different. Uh, and there's no point in chasing targets. And I remember when the you know the recruitment targets and progression targets came in for the police service at the tail end of nineteen nineties. That every organisation seems to be talking about chasing these targets, but if you recruit all of these people, bring them into your organisation, but you haven't changed your culture, therefore that they, they don't feel they have a voice, or they're not seen, or heard, or valued, then actually they're going to opt out in some way, some way, shape, or form. So the organisation and those benefiting from the service of the organisation doesn't really don't really benefit at all. So we're sort of flogging a dead horse by looking at EDI in that traditionalist kind of way. So I'm on a bit of a mission myself to say, hey, EDI should be about culture change. Let's create the right kind of culture where anybody coming into the organisation aligns with the values of the organisation or the industry and and wants to provide that service. Uh, And therefore, the more you do that, the healthier your culture, the more you're going to attract diversity in in the first place anyway. And then your progression looks after itself and so forth and so on. But I think we put far too much um, emphasis on things like representation and recruitment, but we do it very superficially. Is that, is that something that you've experienced yourself?
1: Well, absolutely. And it's uh, a project that I'm currently working on scoping. Um, and so much of what you have just said just absolutely resonates. So firstly, one of the things that I had concern with when I, well, throughout my life and and when I came to office is around um, wanting to pigeonhole me into you're a black woman. So the only thing you're going to talk about is about the black cause. And I'll give you an example where I was undertaking media training for about the fourth time as an office holder. And I walked into this session, sat down and the chap said, right, let's get started. And he said, so I've watched all your videos. I've heard you speak. And he said, so you want to help black people? And I said, I took a pause and I said, remind me which video or speech it was (laughs) where I said I wanted to help specifically just black people. And of course, he couldn't. Now, this is a media trainer, um, you know, and he couldn't. And, but he had made assumptions based on my own demographics that that was the only individuals that I wanted to, 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 to help. And of course, that was not the platform that I occupy or the one that I ran on, because as if, if I take, for instance, black people, and going back to what you just said, we are not one homogeneous group. we come to it, and depending on where you live in the country, in the world, depending on um, your background, You know, your experience of being black is totally different. And that's one of the things that I have worked worked on is to get people to understand that not all our lived experiences are going to be exactly the same just because we share a particular characteristic. But also I have a real problem about dividing and dividing and dividing us up because, you know, you divide and you, you know, the more we divide and divide, we're not solving the problem. We're Mm. we're just dividing each other. So, and we've seen so much of that of late where, you know, it's not about my rights at the exclusion of other people's rights. And I feel very strongly about that because my purpose, my being is to leave this world and certainly the profession in a better shape than I found it. And of course, that goes back to my mission to leave the profession more diverse and inclusive than the one I entered. And I have been absolutely clear that it must be a shared ambition with each and every one of us playing our part. I didn't say just white people. I didn't say just black people, whatever. I said each and every one of us has a responsibility. We have a role in this solving uh, the problem of EDI. And it's about equity. It's about equality. Um, And that goes back to my point about one of the focuses on social mobility, because earlier on, there was lots of work being done around gender inequality. And I sat and I'm mused about that. And in one of the first interviews, I was asked about the obstacles that I had faced as a woman. And I said, it's very difficult for me to talk about obstacles I have faced as a woman without talking about obstacles that I have faced as a black woman. And so yeah. that suddenly started to get people to think, you know, and see beyond, uh, you know, just being female, because lots of work has been done around gender I- equality, inequality, but we haven 't terribly looked at intersectionality
0: uh, you 're so right, and you know I, I, I this this conversation was never going to be about diversity, but it, it has become about culture you know the, the, what is what is the right kind of culture for an industry for an organization for a society and and there 's so much in what you 've said so much wisdom and so many question marks that uh, that people need to be picking up on in so much as a great example would be you know this this idea of dividing, as much as, much as we're homogenising, we're also dividing uh, the whole concept of diversity by putting people into these little groups and then saying, well, their needs are different to their needs and their needs are different to these needs, but not understanding that actually every single person that you're talking about is a human being. And the the, the thing about being human beings is that we're beautifully in, uh, complex Beings, You know, that is the very nature. We're perfectly imperfect. Mm. Uh, And one person may look identical to the next person, but they won't be the same person. Uh, And and the healthy culture and surely the goal has to be how do we create a society or a culture or an environment where everybody feels that they, they have an equality of contribution and equity when it comes to the opportunity that comes their way and in order for us to do that we need to have that cognitive diversity that mm. diversity of thought we need to we need to almost smash down these echo chambers these group think mentalities that predominantly exist in some of these larger organizations that have been around a long long time you know and they've got a certain way of operating and, um, I hesitate to say this, but I'm guessing it is the case that the Law Society must have been one of those, the, those kind of environments, because it's been around such a long time.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, the, the 177th, the sixth female, the first black, the first person of colour, and only the second in-house solicitor to become president in the society's almost 200-year history. Oh, wow. History. So, yeah. There were lots of firsts there, but, you know, somebody asked me the other day, why did it take four attempts? Uh, And, you know, my last night of office, I said, well, to put it frankly, they couldn't see what I could see. I had people say to me that never in our lifetime would we see an ethnic minority become president never in you know we need somebody who can converse with government as if i couldn't converse with government we need uh you know you'll get frustrated with the workings of this building and absolutely i got frustrated with the workings of the law society it's a huge beast it's you know it's it's, it's a huge tank vessel to turn around yes. but you know, I was prepared to put in the work and do exactly that and turn it around, shape the way that people perceive the law society, the way we as the law society worked for society, that public interest element. Um, there is a deficiency in this country in in, in public uh, legal education. What is the right? What is the point of legal rights if you don't know what your rights are and you don't even know when those rights are being taken away? And so. I wanted to reposition the law society, to make it more visible, more relevant to what was going on, to to change the messaging. Um, And that's one of the things I set about. So going back to your point about culture and about a piece of work that I'm working on around leadership, because I have exactly that concern that whilst we're chasing targets, uh, whether it's 10 percent, you know, over here of black partners or whatever, we're not. How are we actually nurturing the nurturing, fostering, accelerating, you know all of those things in the pipeline or when we put we've met our targets, you know our utopia yep. is 2030. We've met all the targets, but how are we transforming those individuals into leaders? How are we properly empowering them, equipping them, you know, in order to make them thrive? And far too often what we see, whether that's uh, the recent exodus of women leaders, what we see is is that, you know, when things are not going so well, we'll look to uh, uh, colleagues, you know, uh, who perhaps don't look like uh, the usual norm and we'll give them uh, a chance when we know that potentially uh, they've got a lot to turn that ship around with.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 you know, I've got on a post-it note in front of me right now, um, three words, mind the gap. Uh, And uh, You know, I wrote this only this morning uh, because I was going to reach out to another organization. I do a lot of work with a lot of uh, industries and sectors and organizations around bridging that gap that there is between these underrepresented groups that you've brought into your organization who've got huge, incredible potential and incredible talent. But for some reason or another, they don't get that equality of opportunity or the equity, not because of any... You know, outdated policies that you might might have, but because of the social norms that exist in your organisation that you might not even be aware of. And, you know, in the poli- in the context of policing and uh, those kind of organisations, it was like the, you know, the football club, yeah. the, the yacht sailing club, yes. the netball club, yeah. and so forth, and those that go to the pub or for a meal, etc., on a regular basis. And there are yet so many people in organisations and industries that don't accord with that. You know, that is not their norm. That's not, that's, you know, to ask them to be involved in that, if that's your only social networking opportunity to excel in your organisation or be seen or heard, then there's something wrong in the organisation because we're not actually opening it up to the majority of the organisation, to everybody in the organisation. So I do a lot of work around uh, how do we bridge that gap and, um, And I think what you're doing now in terms of your work around, particularly around that progression element, I think is going to be fascinating. I can't wait to have a a deeper conversation with you on that. But what are the initial findings that you're picking up on? What is the initial piece of work that you think many organisations need to do? What's the gap that you're seeing?
1: The gap in my mind is between uh, you've got a few colleagues, so you've recruited a few colleagues, they're in post, they're in position, but whilst you're chasing the rest of the target in order to, you know, complement and, and, and finish, uh, you've, you know, attain the target, you're not nurturing what you've got here. You're not, yeah. if you like, minding uh, uh, those individuals, you could even say minding the gap between those that are there and those you're still chasing. And consequently, what we're seeing is individuals leaving organisations because they do not feel that they belong. They do not feel included um, because, nobody's actually looking after them. Nobody is, is suddenly we've lost interest. Well, we've got three, we need to achieve another seven by whatever date. So actually, you know, they'll get on with it. Um, And what I'm saying... And isn't
0: the sad shame isn't, sorry to interrupt you there, Stephanie, but isn't it a sad shame that when you start thinking like that uh, and being very metric about it, it's almost like treating it like a KPI.
1: Absolutely. As
0: opposed to some real sort of depth of thought and feeling and understanding and
1: you know, and values within that. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and that's the whole point, is getting people to think about whilst you're chasing those, uh, you know, the data, the KPIs, whatever we choose to call it, whilst you're chasing that, what is the long-term plan? What next? What happens? And of course, lots of people haven't given real thought. Lots of organisations haven't given real thought to it. It's, you know, so it's trying to get people to think wider and broader. And actually think about your succession pipeline. Why, you know, when I've, you know, said about doing various uh, pieces of work, people will say, well, we need results now. Forget the fact that there's nobody, you know, there's nobody around who can fulfil all of their criteria. Um, But, you know, so we need to go back to grassroots. We need to start in schools. And of course, I've long spoken and campaigned about getting law taught in schools um and that's from a number of reasons because of uh you know uh, to change the perception of what a lawyer looks like sounds like who is welcomed into this profession you know with some 23% of solicitors being privately educated against 7% of the wider UK population there is a gap there between people coming mm. into our profession thriving in this profession, progressing, and staying in this profession.
0: I mean, that's fascinating. I had no idea that nearly a quarter of the profession is privately educated. Uh, so, you know, going to the point that you're talking about around the, uh, you know, the social mobility and the economic environment that an individual might have come from, I can see where there would be an extra gap within, you know, the industry that is the law society and the legal industry. Everything that we've talked about, Stephanie, so far, um, I think fits very comfortably into the whole concept of human-centred leadership. Mm-hmm. And if there's one thing that people should be taking away from this is that, yes, we've talked at a very high level around what equity, equality, inclusion really looks like in your organisation and what the, the business benefits are to, to do some real work around around that beyond the rhetoric that we often hear. Because I think when, particularly when it comes to race, um, there's a lack of leadership courage to get things done. So what we tend to do is we tend to become very verbose about it. And there's a lot of fancy rhetoric and really impressive rhetoric, but very little action that follows. And, you know, in the context of policing, you know, I've been involved in policing now for nearly four decades, right from the Scarman Report days through to McPherson, through to, to you know, everything that fell out from the Casey reviews and, and many other reviews besides... But very little has actually changed. You know, uh, we're still questioning culture. We're still seeing these subversive groups that exist and elements that exist within policing. And I'm guessing it's the same uh, with every other industry. We are a reflection of Mm. society, really. Mm. Um, So I think it really is about that getting really down in deep into the culture, but understanding that the beauty of the United Kingdom right now is that we are not the United Kingdom that we were a hundred years ago. We are in a beautifully diverse, uh, diverse country, uh, full of the diversity of cultures, thoughts, but it's about celebrating them and using them to the maximum benefit to our, to all the country uh, organizations and industries that serve our country. So it really is about your people. It's about understanding how do we get the best Mm. from our people. Mm. So I just want to, I was wondering if you could just leave us with a few nuggets of gold. If you are a senior leader working in in your organisation or in an industry, maybe you hold a position across your industry like you did as the uh, president of the Law Society what are the kind of things that people should be looking at that can maybe just maybe shift us from the rhetoric into the action so that we do leave that industry or that organization slightly better uh, than it was when we first uh, engaged with it
1: well absolutely i'm going to borrow the words of uh, mary Ch- uh, mary church terrell where she says you know we must lift as we climb and that has exactly been my mantra to lift as I climb, to leave, as I say, the profession, to leave this world in a better, we owe it to the next generation. We owe it to ourselves to leave this world in a better place than we found it. But also, I absolutely believe that every door is open. If you push, you persevere until something happens. And that has been, you know, my constant companion throughout my journey to get me to where I am today. It has been hard work. It's meant I've had to step out of my comfort zone Um, And, you know, what a remarkable journey it has been and continues to be. But I want to see more uh, diverse colleagues in positions of leadership. I want to reframe the narrative as to how we think about leaders as as a society, who we put in positions of power and influence. Um, and we need to have a discussion about that, but also to raise the aspirations of young people and, and, and adults 100%. in general in our society, raise their aspirations. And I'm going to continue to fly that flag, to be a visible role model, because if I did it after four attempts, if I did it, Anyone else can do it.
0: Such wisdom uh, that we're going to leave this podcast with today. Uh, Stephanie, um, I knew it was going to be incredible to have you on. You've added so much value. I hope uh, a lot of the listeners take uh, so much away from this because... We just need to unpick this conversation and there are so many things that can affect your industry, your organisation, your leadership journey and also of the lives that you touch going forward. Stephanie, thank you so much for being here. Um, I look forward to meeting you in person uh, the next time that we actually go to Windsor Castle together. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please do subscribe and click on notifications for new content and of course, connect with me on LinkedIn. Take care. Have a great day.